ladies and gents, proclamation news and gatherings, discovering arts and humanities. Module A one 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 Questioning Tradition Chapter five page two hundred thirty. A mosaic found in Roman city of Pompeii is thought to represent Plato in discussion with his students at the academy. The mosaic was centuries after Plato's death. Since it cannot be treated as evidence for his practice at the academy. But I've noticed it here because it presents an image of philosophical discussion of the sort that we find in dialogues. You might note that in particular that sort that we find in the dialogues. You might note in particular that Plato, presumed to be the figure sitting under the tree, is represented as being surrounded by his students, not as lecturing them from the front of the class. You might contrast the poor, uh, this portrayal of philosophical discussion with the image presented in figure 10. Finally, Plato's views on knowledge might explain why they house to write dialogues rather than essays. But writing a dialogue, Plato has no less than Socrates avoids simply presenting us with his opinions, but instead encourages us to reflect critically on the question raised by his characters. As we read, we can imagine ourselves joining the conversation, giving our answers to Socrates' questions or own sections to his argument. Most of Plato's early dialogues, and without a clear answer, enticing us to continue the investigation for ourselves. Indeed, one benefit of reading Plato is that, is that his writings are designed to encourage this kind of critical reflection, inviting us to think through the arguments for ourselves and to come to our own view. This is an important habit, whether we are studying philosophy or any other academic discipline. We can now return to the question I raised about the beginning for the chapter. Why does Plato think about other moral beliefs should be grounded on reason rather than tradition? Why, do, why does he prefer to moral rationalism or moral traditionalism? Can you see a connection between the claim that knowledge involves understanding something to yourself and the claim that the reason rather than tradition is the proper source of moral beliefs. Traditional beliefs, as I defined them in section 1.1, on this chapter are beliefs which we take on trust. Without reflecting on, for Plato, beliefs that this kind are merely opinions, it is only by reflecting on and on reasoning about the moral beliefs that we can turn them into knowledge. If so then, concern is that, even when they are true, they merely second-hand opinions that do not amount to knowledge. Plato's point does not apply to common-sense beliefs, it applies just as well as a philosophical tradition, that is, a set of beliefs passed down from one generation to another by the followers of a particular philosopher. In Paratin's Socrates' opinions, Nicias treats him as if he were the founder of a philosophical tradition, putting forward a set of doctrines that his followers can take no trust but Socrates as Plato portrays him does not see his role in this way he aims to stimulate people to acquire knowledge for themselves but critically reflecting on their own beliefs good look at the summary in Plato's latest Socrates sets out to discover what courage is he does this by not accepting traditional beliefs about courage but by using rational argument to scrutinise possibility answers, however, I've suggested that the discussion in latches should prompt us to think not only about the nature of the courage, but also the nature of the knowledge. For as we've seen, understanding Plato's views about knowledge 
may well help us understand why Nicias attempts to define courage fails. It also helps us to understand why Plato wrote dialogues, why Socrates claims not to know the answers to his own questions, and why Plato rejected moral traditionalism. Page 235, the reading of latches. Socrates so latches are or two friends are calling us to advise them on how their sons can acquire virtue and he had into better people. Isn't that right? Latches, yes it is, he says. Socrates, in that case, do we need to know that what virtue is after all? If we have no idea what virtue is, how can we possibly advise anyone on the best place to acquire it? Latches, I think it would be impossible. Socrates, Socrates, so Latches were claiming that we do know what it is. Latches says, we are indeed. Socrates, in that case, my friend, let's not examine the whole of virtue straight off. That might be too big to ask instead. It's start by looking at part of it to see if we know enough about that. That will make our investigation easier, I expect. Latches, let's do that. Socrates, as you suggest. Socrates, so which part of the virtue shall we pick? Obviously, it should be part of the lesson in fighting in armour. We are supposed to foster most people think that's courage. Yes. Latches, it certainly seems so. Socrates, so Latches, let's start by trying to state what the courage is. Then after after that, we'll investigate how young men can inquire it through exercise and training. Supposing that's possible. Source Plato, 1903. Platonist Opera, Volume 3, edited by John Burnett, reprint at Oxford, Clavdon Press, 1980, translated by Caroline Price, the paragraph numbers added. 12. Socrates, so I say, try to state what courage is. That is really, Socrates, that is not hard to do. If someone's ready to stand in the ranks, to fend off the enemy, and not to retreat, there's no doubt he's courageous. Socrates, well said, Latches. Still, the question you've answered isn't the one I had in mind, but a different one. Perhaps I'm to blame because I didn't explain it clearly. Latches, what are you talking about, Socrates? Socrates, I'll explain if I can. The man you described, the man who stands in the ranks and fights the enemy, he is courageous, I grant you. Latches, I certainly did, I did, I did certainly say so. Socrates, and I agree, but what about another example? Someone who fights it, Emily, by retreating and giving ground. Latches, what do you mean by retreating? Socrates, I, su I suppose as people say the Scythians fight as much in retreat in as in pursuit. And perhaps, as Homer says, when he's uh, praising Arrhenius horses, dashing now, here and now there, experts in chase and in fight. Latches, and that's fine. Socrates, because... He was describing chariots, and you were talking about the Scythian cavalry. Cavalry, do you fight that? But infantry fight in the way that I describe. Socrates, well, that was what I meant just now when I when I said that I was to blame when you didn't give a good answer because I didn't put my question very well. I didn't want you to tell me only about people who are courageous in an infantry action, but also about people who are courageous in a cavalry action. And in every kind of welfare, and not just about people who are courageous in war, but also people who are courageous amid dangers at sea. And all the people 
who are courageous in illness or poverty, and in political life, because I take it, Leitches, that's all that these people are courageous. Leitches, yes, very much so, Socorets. Socorets, so try again to tell me what courage is. First and foremost, tell me what all these people have in common, or do you still not understand what I mean? Leitches says, not completely. Socorets, well, that is what I'm getting at. Suppose that I were to ask what quickness is. That's something that can be found in money and in playing liar, and speaking and in learning, and it's not of other activities. We cannot be quick in doing just about anything worth mentioning. Whether it's something we do with our hands, or our legs, or our mouth, and our voice, or our mind, would you agree with that? Ladies, yes, I would. Socrates, so now suppose that someone were to ask me, what do you think that is? This quality that, in all these activities, you call quickness, I'd answer that in my view what I call quickness is the ability to do much in a little time whether it's to do with speaking or running or any other activity Latches says you'd be given the right answer to Socorette says well then Latches it's your turn try to state what courage is in the same way what is it uh, common to all the examples of courage we just mentioned in um, reading 5.3 Latches 192b to 192d Source Plato, 1903 Platonius, Opera, 3, edited by John Burnett, reprint, Oxford, Clarendon Press, 1980, translated by Clarendon Price. His paragraph numbers is added. 31, Lattice, well now, it seems to me that courage is a sort of endurance in one's character. If I had to say what it is in every case, Socrates. But of course, you must, if you're going to have an answer or to our question, now this is how things look to me, you don't think I suspect, that obviously every case of endurance is a case of courage. I'm guessing that's so, because I'm pretty sure, ladies, that you take courage to be an admirable thing. Ladies, one of the most admirable things there is, you need have no doubt of that. Socrates, when it's coupled with a good sense, endurance is admirable and good, isn't it? Ladies says, yes it is. Socrates, but what if the endurance is coupled with foolishness? Would you say that is a marble thing then? That wouldn't be right, Socrates. Socrates, so why wouldn't you agree that this kind of endurance is courage? Because it's not admirable, but courage is admirable. Latches, that's true. Reading 5.4, Latches, 194 to 195a. Nicias, well, now, Socrates, I've been thinking for a while that the two of you haven't been defining courage very well. It's a very good suggestion that I've heard you make in the past, which you are not using. Socrates, which suggestion is that, uh, Nicias? Nicias, I've often heard you say that there were were each good in matters or which were wise, but in matters on which were ignorant were bad. Socrates, that's perfectly true, Nicias. Nicias, so if courage man is good, it's clear that he's wise. Socrates, did you hear that latest? Latest, I did. And I don't have a clue what he's saying. Socrates, I think I do. He seems to be saying that courage is some kind of wisdom. What kind of wisdom, Socrates? Why are you asking him? Yes, I am. What I mean is that this, latest courage is knowledge of what fearsome and what encouraging, whether it's in war or any other situation. Reading 5.5, Latches 196 to 197. Now, Nicias, tell me, or 
Rather, tell us, since Latches and I were sharing the discussion between us, your argument is courage is knowledge. Of what is fearsome, what is courage in? Isn't it? Yes. And if something that everyone has isn't that what you said, yes it was. So, not for any pig would know. And saying goes, so pig couldn't be courageous. Nisha says, no, I think not. Socorette says, indeed, I think if one puts forward your theory, one is forced either to deny that any animal whatsoever is courageous or else to allow that animal like a lion or a leopard or even a wild boar is clever enough to know things which all but human beings find too difficult to understand. And in one of them, as the same concept of courage as you, one is bound to admit that is far that as far as being courageous is concerned, lions, stags, bulls and apes are all in the same position. Latest, that's a very good point. Socrates, now let's have an honest answer to this. Nisus, are they wiser than us? These animals, was, we agree, are courageous. Is this what you are saying? Or have you the nerve to contradict everyone else and not call them courageous at all? <coughs> Nicias, yes I have, Flaches, courageous is not the word I would use to describe animals or anything else that's not afraid or danger because of its own lack of understanding. I prefer fearless and foolish, or do you suppose I call every little child courageous because it doesn't understand and so it's not afraid of anything, no. To be unafraid and to be courageous are two different things. Courage and foresight are, in my opinion, things a very small number of people possess where being reckless, daring, fearless and blind its consequences is a norm for the vast majority of men, women, children and animals. So you see, what you, what you and most people call courageous, I call reckless. Courageous actions are wise actions, as I said. Reading 5.6, Latches 197E to 199D. Socrates, now... Nietzsche's could explain to us again from the start. You remember, don't you, that we begin to inquire into courage by looking at it as part of a virtue. Nietzsche says, yes, indeed. Socrates, do, so do you agree with us It's part that it's part of that there is other parts, which, when they are all put together, all called virtue? Yes, obviously. And by parts, we mean the same things, don't we? You and I, apart from courage, what I call parts includes temperance, justice and other things like that. Are they what you think too? Yes, they are. Socrates says, "Hold on, then. We agree about the thing. We agree about the things. But now let's investigate what's fearsome and what's encouraging to check that you don't take them to be one thing, while latches will take them to be another. So let me tell you that we take them to be. And if you don't agree, you can't. You can put this right. We take this into what's fearsome and bad things that will happen in the future." And that what's encouraging are the good things of neutral things that lie ahead. Would you say the same or something else? Nicias, I said, I'd say the same. Socrates, and that, and it's the knowledge of the things that you say is uh, encouraged. Nicias says precisely. Socrates, then let's look at the third question to see if you agree with us about that as well. Nicias uh, says, what is it? Socrates says, Socrates says, I'll tell you, Latches uh, and I are of the view that with any branch of knowledge, there's no difference between knowing what's happened in the past, knowing what's happening now, and knowing what is going to happen in the future. 
It's all the same thing. So, for any subject matter, there's just one body of knowledge that concerns the future, the present and the past. Do you agree with us, Nisias? Nisias says, yes, Socrates, that's what I think. Socrates says, then courage can't be knowledge of what's fearsome and what's encouraged alone. Like any other kind of knowledge, it will be concerned, not only with the future, but also with the past and the present, all in one. Nisias says, I guess so. Socrates... So you know, so you know, you're no longer saying that courage is knowledge, and only of the fearsome and what's encouraging. You're saying it's that it's effectively knowledge of what's bad and what's good at any time. Is this your position, Nicias, or do you want to say something else? Nicias says that's what I think, Socrates. Socrates, suppose then there are some there, that there are someone who knows about every kind of good thing, whether they are in present the future or the past, and suppose that it is knowledge of bad things, just as inextensive. Do you think that this man would be short of virtue in any way? And that's more. Do you suppose that he'd be lacking in temperance or justice or piety? After all, this is the man who's able to guard against the bad and is secure what's good, and who, how he ought to behave, both towards the gods and towards the people. Nicias, I think you have a point, Socrates. Socrates, so surely Nicias' knowledge of what is bad and what is good won't be part of the virtue, but the whole of the virtue. Nicias says, I guess so. Socrates, but we did say that courage is part of the virtue. Nicias, we did say that. Socrates, but we are telling you about now doesn't appear to be the part of the virtue. Nicias, so I guess, no, I guess not. Socrates, so we haven't discovered what code is, Nicias. Nicias, no, it seems we haven't. Source Plato, 2005, Protagoras and Memo, edited and translated by Adam Beresford, London, in Penguin, page 129-30. to 30. Front notes removed, paragraphs, numbers added. Socrates, suppose someone knew the way to Lysera or wherever, and on his way there and showing other people how to get there. Obviously, he'd be good at showing them the right way. Mino, of course. And what about someone who had an opinion on how to get there, a correct opinion? But who'd actually ever been there, and didn't know how to get there, wouldn't be able to show them the way as well. Uh, Mino, of course. Socrates, and presumably as long as he has his correct opinion, he'd be very bit of a good at showing people the way. With his true belief, but without knowledge, he'd be just as good a guide as the man with the knowledge. Mino, yes, he'll be just as good. Socrates, in other words, true opinion is just a good guide to the right action as knowledge. Mino, it just seems the uh, it just seems it seems that must be right, which leaves me wondering. Socrates, if that's the case, why on earth is the knowledge so much more valuable than correct opinion, and why are they treated as two different things? Socrates says, well, you know why it is, you're wondering about it. Shall I tell you? Mino says, go ahead. Socrates, it's because you haven't pondered Deidre's status. Maybe you haven't even got any any up there in uh, this city. Mino, what have you got to do with, do with it? Socrates, well, they're the same. If they aren't shackled, they escape. They scamper away, but if they're shackled, then stay put. Mino, what are you getting at? 
Sokorat says, if you, own, if you own an original Deledus, unshackled is not worth that all that much because it doesn't stay put. But if you've got one that is shackled, it's very valuable because they're a really lovely piece of work. Is this the same true opinions? True opinions, as long as they stay put, are fine. Thing to do with a whole lot of good. Only they tend not to stay put for very long. There's always scampering away from a personal soul. So it's not very valuable until you shackle them from figuring who makes them true. And then... Once, you're, once they're shackled, they turn into knowledge and become stable and fixed. So that's why knowledge is more valuable thing than correct opinion. And that's the knowledge differs from, correct, a, correct, from a correct opinion by a shackle. Introduction on page 251. On Easter Monday, 25th of April 1916, the First World War was underway. Around 1,600 members of two military organisations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizens Army, marched out to seize the Green Points in Dublin City. Their commanders, Patrick, also known as Padraig, Pierce, and James Connolly, figures 1 and 2, made the General Post Office, GPO, in Sackville Street, their headquarters, and the flag. The words of Irish Republic was flown over the building. Then... And at the front of the GPO, on behalf of the Provisional Government of the Irish Republic, please read about the pro uh, proclamation of the Irish Republic. To be mused, passerby, as Grayson and McGarry, 2006, page 47. It began with the words, Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and the dead of the generations from which she receives her tradition of nationhood, Ireland, though us summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Proclamation went on to declare the right of the people of Ireland to ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of the Irish destinies. Rights, rights that be, uh, not been extinguished by the long usurpation of the foreign people and government. Michael and O. Snoddarg in 1985, page 17 to 18. It's a figure online, you can look at it. Photograph of Patrick Pierce, 1916. Patrick, also known as Padraig Pierce, 1979-1916, a schoolteacher, poet, writer, member of the Gaelic League and the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a secret oath, ban organisation that aimed to establish a republic in Ireland by force. An author of the proclamation, the Irish Republic, in 1916. He was executed for this part in a 1916 rising photo. Figure 2, photograph of James Colony, photographed by... Lafayette, Dublin, 1916, James Colony, 1968-1916, a Scottish trade union activist and commander of the Irish Citizen Army in 1916. He was also executed in part of the 1916 Rising. This event is marked beginning of, long, beginning of a short-lived rebellion against the British rule of the island, known as the Easter Rising of the 1916 Rising. After six days of fighting, the shelling of Dublin city centre and the imposition of the Mountain Law, Pierce ordered to surrender of the troops. Although few Irish people and supported the radical Republican aims of those involved in the 1916 rising, public opinion began to shift in the weeks that followed as the mass arrest of the participants. It took place in the 14 leaders of the rebellion, including all seven signatories of the proclamation were executed by firing squad or 
Kidimanheim of Gael in Dublin. It is notable that proclamation of the Republic suggests that the island had not an old tradition to nationhood and that all, rebel, all the rebels were acting the same as, as of the dead generations that had come before the Michael O. Snogdag in 1985, the nationalists are all over the world, have justified independence movements on the basis of their nation as an ancient and distinctive culture that is threatened by foreign rule. Hutchinson in 2013. Many historians are interested in better understandings. What motivates people to take up arms to assert the right of their nation to rule themselves in particular they are interested in understanding the reasons why people develop a strong sense of national identity coming to believe that we belong to a distinctive community of people whose traditions and culture are worthy of protection why did Irish people seek independence the reasons why Irish people in the late 19th 19th and 20th centuries sought to, uh, a greater degree of independence from Britain were complex religious, cultural, economic and political grievances all played a role. In the 16th century British monarchs such as Henry VII and Elizabeth I Henry VIII and Elizabeth I I oversaw the introduction of the Protestantism to Ireland. You will read more about the Protestant Reformation in England and Scotland in the next chapter on Christianity and the material culture. Although the vast majority of Irish people renamed Catholic by the end of the 17th century a great deal of land and political power in Ireland and has been transferred from Catholics to Protestants who were generally settlers from Britain. Furthermore, throughout the 18th century, a body of laws, usually referred to as the Penal Laws, placed restrictions on Catholics, for instance, they were prevented from practising law, holding most public offices or sitting in the Irish Parliament. During the same period, many Irish Protestants became frustrated with various restrictions placed on the Irish Parliament by the British counterpart, particularly in relation to laws governing a trade. After the United Kingdom of Ireland and Britain became one of 1801, former United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland, widespread poverty, immigration and devastating famine Family. 1845-51 further contributed to the Irish grievances as a result. Popular peaceful mo- uh, movements for Catholic rights, Irish self-rule and reform 19th century so too did a number of groups willing to use the violence in order to see Ireland s- sever all ties with the United Kingdom as it established itself as an in- independent republic. The Great Maze Escape 1983 one in which way tradition might be defined is a belief accepted without question is a past one of generation to generation. As you saw in previous chapter on Plato, certain beliefs and stories about the past, particularly the idea that one nation has existed since time immemorial and that of all the people of that nation share community history, common history, are often the cornerstone of national identity. However, these beliefs and stories are not necessarily accurate, fair, viable or based on a careful examination of evidence. Collective memory and tradition. When dealing with the issue of national identity and beliefs that national communities share about their past, historians often speak in terms of collective social or public memory. The idea of collective memory is one particularly associated with the French Sociologist Maurice Hal 
and Hubwax. 1987-1995, writing in the 1920s. Hubwax argued the personal memories are shaped and influenced by the various groups to which we belong, such as our family, local communities and so on. For example, while he could not remember his first day at school, when witness to an event, his parents describe it to him. This artificial construction suddenly takes life and becomes transformed into remembrance. Hall Wax, 1980, page 24, similarly suggests that the ideas provided by other people might cause us to change the impression that we kept some of the distant fact or some of the known some some of some person known long ago, nineteen eighty, page twenty five, he argued that such collective memories or in other words, personal memories influenced by others have an impact on both individuals and group identity. Some since nineteen eighties, Halbach's ideas have received a great ideal of interest from researchers across a range of disciplines. Historians have been particularly interested in that the idea memory can be shaped and influenced by others. One influential theory is regarded as that of the invention tradition. It is associated with the book of essays. The invention of tradition, 1983, edited by two distinguished historians, Eric Hobsworth and Terence Ranger. The essay in the collection focused on various ways of the 19th century European states is created by cultural symbols of the practice of the same to be widely regarded and ancient or traditional in origin, such as flags or other emblems of state um, commemorations, a pageantry surround of the monarchy. These new traditions had a purpose to foster the idea that all of the people living in a state were part of one nation and had been shared common history stre- stretching back to the time of memorial of course as you have seen from chapters in this book traditions are adaptable flexible and are subject to change over time one criticism criticism of hob warms and ranger's idea is that invented traditions are often difficult to distinguish for real ones whereas Hobbeswarm and Ranger were uh, primarily concerned with how states influenced the way in which the national communities remember the past, essentially a top-down process after influential collection of essays, this time exploring French and national identity. Des Locs de Memoir, usually translated as Sites of uh, Memory, edited by Pierre Nora encouraged uh, researchers to consider as much wider range of factors that might influence national memory. Noah was interested in mythology, of the most expensive and revealing elements of the Frenchness. Noah 1996. To end what is considered a range of sites memory, such as museums, dictionaries, mo- uh, monuments, for example. The Arc de Triomphe, sporting events like the Tour de France, and historical figures, including... Joanne of Arc. It is notable for the Nora argued that what is a type of history that was less interested in events themselves than the construction of events over time, less interested in what actually happened than its perpetual re- uh, reuse and misuse in its influence on successive presents. Less interested in traditions than the way which traditions are constitu- uh, constituated and passed on. Here, Noah explains that we, he is not concerned with historical events or episodes, but rather 
tracing how traditions, ideas, stories or memories of the past change and develop over time. If you was of the opinion and a study or history is about determining facts about what actually happened in the past, it is possible that the idea of research and beliefs and perception about the past may not meet the expectations. If you thought to this chapter, nonetheless, whether certain memories or traditions are real or invented, true or false, new or old, studying them and the ways which they were constituted and passed on, help us better understand how groups or people, such as national communities, thought about particular issues. This, in turn, help us to better understand why these pe uh, groups of people may have been acting certain ways at different points of time. Historians go on about doing this in much the same way and that they would investigate any other historical event, examining primary source evidence. Developments in Ireland before and after the 1916 rising provide an excellent case of study for exploring collective memory and traditional beliefs. In this chapter, you'll consider how and why certain ideas, stories or modes of thinking about the nation and its shared history, as well as certain cultural practices, are constituted and passed in on the Irish context. The first part of this chapter will consider the cultural nationalism movement that emerged in the 19th century and the early, early, 19th, early 20th centuries, typically referred to as the Irish Revival or the Irish Reminiscence. Beliefs in the stories of the Irish history, particularly ancient Irish history, were promoted by cultural nationalists for the purpose of fostering a sense of Irish national identity, which can in turn be seen to have played and involved bolstering support for political nationalist projects and the movement of Irish independence after 1916. The second part of this chapter was considered developments after 1916 rising, and why the event came to be widely regarded as one of the most important in the history of the Irish nation, as we know it today. Culturalism, nationalism, is a form of nationalism concerned with the shared culture, cultural practice of the nation, such as language, dress and music. Cultural nationalist movements emerged in the countries in the late 19th and the early 19th centuries are typically, typically present certain aspects of the past in a romantic or idealist way. For instance, in Wales, Scotland and Ireland, the Celtic past was often portrayed as a golden age in the history of each nation. While in England there was a particular focus on positive aspects of the Anglo-Saxon and medieval history, renewed interest in the past was reflected in a wide variety of ways. To give two examples, 19th century in Wales, the Eastead Fod, a meeting of the Welsh boards, bards and celebration of Welsh culture, was revived. And in Scotland, the Highland Games, a festival of Scottish sports, dancing and the music, was reinvigorated in England and a Gothic revival in architecture which you study later in chapter 8, also been seen by the product of cultural nationalism. Thank you all for listening now. Please subscribe to Proclamation and Gavins. We're going to carry on through. The Irish Revival. The Irish Revival involved developments in literature, visual arts and Irish language, sports, music, dancing and a range of other areas of Irish life. Those involved in the movement produced art, artistic and literary works, that sought to foster a sense of the Irish national identity, drawing the ancient Irish past for inspiration. Researchers from a range of disciplines, including itra, art history, 
folklore, archaeology and history have noted to repeated uncertain ideas, images and symbols and revivalists which are, were designed to evoke sense of the Irish nation was a coherent community with a unique culture and history. To be better understand this, we'll start by exploring some primary sources relevant to the Irish revival. The Irish language of the Gaelic revival. To begin with, I'd like to, you to consider a lecture called The Necessity for the De-Angolizing Ireland, given by Douglas Hyde in 1892. It is an important primary source, providing insight into a rational an establishment of a Gaelic League in organisation for Ireland in 1893 to promote the use of the Irish language. This seemed a particularly urgent task at the time. As the use of, as the, use of the Irish had been declining at a rapid pace over the course of the 19th century, particularly due to the establishment of the nationwide system of the elementary education in 1831, under which all teaching was carried out in the English language. Douglas Hyde, the author of the primary source, was the Irish language scholar and a pioneer of the Irish revel, specified the Irish language in the Gaelic revival. He went to become the first president of Ireland, the elected House of State from 1834, 1838 to 45. Turn to reading 6.1. The extracts are taken from the lecture that Hyde delivered in Dublin on 25th November 1892. The necessity for the Anglars in Ireland lecture was presented the year before the Gaelic League was founded and was intended to convince people that there are a pressing need to preserve and revive the Irish language. I'd like you to read these extracts carefully and think about what this primary source tells you about the attitudes in Ireland towards Britain and attitude towards Irish culture. As you read these extracts you will encounter some unfamiliar names and terminologies, for instance, Hyde refers to a number of nationalist political movements such as Young Idolism, Feminism, Land of Leganism and Parliamentary Obstruction. Try not to pay too much attention to such details. You could be able to respond to the following questions on the basis of reading the extracts alone. In Hyde's view, how did Irish people feel about England? What did Irish people feel about Irish and Irish culture? What is Hyde's solution to this problem? What political aims does Hyde have? Why does the extract help us to study the, the revival, the Irish revival? Does it have any limitations in this regard, keeping in mind the type of document it is and the historical context? Hyde suggests that the majority of Irish people fell a dull, ever-abiding animosity against England and the English people. He suggests that they were grief when she, England, prosperous and the joy when she was hurt. I suggest that the Irish people are ashamed of their own culture and language. As a result, they were a nation of imitators. 1894, page 160. Copying English habits, Hyde recommends that Irish people develop a sense of pride in their own culture, a focus in building up the Irish notion on the Irish lines. 1894 to page 120, preventing the further decay of the Irish language in central to the process. Hyde claims that the task of reviving the Irish language was not a political one. He obs observes the Irish people dislike English, but he refuses to comment on whether this sentiment 
is the right or wrong. In the last paragraph, he argues that prompting ice culture is a project that would appeal to both unionists and nationalists, to everyone, whatever his politics. For this is one political matter, 1894, page 161. The extract helps us to better us understand contemporary arguments about why the Irish culture ought to be revived. In terms of limitations, he only provides us with insights into opinions of the first of one person who had particular interest in reviving Irish language at a particular point in time. Although we can't draw general conclusions about the Irish revival from a single source that expresses the views of a single person, the issues raised are the source provide a useful starting point for studying the movement. For one, it is notable that Hyde argues that by reviving Irish culture, the Irish nation could be become what is what it is of yore, one of the most original artistic, literary and charming peoples of Europe, 1894. Page 161. According to Hyde, the Irish people were once at some point in their ancient past a great nation, and it could be again. If only they focused on their attention on their own culture. As you'll see, this is an idea very much evident. In other sources relevant to the Irish revival, secondly, it is notable that for Hyde, the project of reviving Irish culture was not a political matter. Why was what while while he was by no means alone in this view. The lines between walk between culture and the political nationalism were not as clear cut as he suggested here. I will turn to this issue later in this section. But for now I'd like to discuss them used in reading six point one that they may have been unfamiliar to you. West Britain this is a term I use to refer to an Irish person who is an ang Anglophile, someone who's greatly admires England and Britain. This idea is also evident in figure 4. I like that word, Anglophile, which shows a poster advertising the Gaelic League's fundraising campaign for a Scythian and Gaelic League. Irish Week, a festival established in 1903 and still ongoing, during which people are encouraged to speak in the Irish. The poster poses the question, on which side are you, mean that of Erie, Ireland, or that of West Britain. And you learned in Book 1, Chapter 3 on Elizabeth I, historians often use visual primary sources as evidence. These sources are, are particularly useful for understanding the Irish revival, par partly because there are so many to choose from. Take a moment how to carefully at Figure 4. On the left-hand side of the poster, representing Ireland is a female figure dressed in robes, standing tall, and holding a spear. Another woman is depicted on the right-hand side, representing West Britain. She faces east towards Britain, her hand outstretched, as if begging. And she was wrapped in a um, tattered, tattered remains of Union Jack. The message in this post is clear. To support the fundraising efforts of Session and the Gallig, was the support of Ireland, the nation, of proud, strong, self-reliant people. When you read the depiction in the paragraph, you sort of give a sense of sense of um, humanity behind the description it gives. Remember, in ancient Ireland, in it is significant the female figure represented Ireland figure four. It's depicted in some kind of ancient dress. 
just as Hyde suggests that Ireland was a great nation, in the distant past, the, the image of the female figure reminds of a viewer of ancient or prehistoric Ireland. This period of time was a particularly important reference point of cultural nationalists. The late Bronze Age of Ireland, 2500 to 500 BCE, was a notable for sophisticated gold artefacts. With a distinctive Latini style of the Celtic decoration, the pattern of the robes worn by the female figure representing the island is reminiscent of Celtic or the Iron Age art. St. Patrick and the beginning of the Irish history. History is often defined in the study of the past through the use of written documents. Although, as you learn previously, historians today often draw on a wider range of evidence. As a result, the period before the written record begins is sometimes referred to the prehistory or the prehistoric in Ireland's case. The historical record is sometimes seen in the be uh, beginning of the 5th century CE. But the two Latin documents, Confesso and Epistolo, written at St. Patrick, the person generally accredited with bringing Christianity to the island, and who is now the country's patron saint. The Confessio is a particularly important primary source as it provides details of Patrick's early life. On the basis of this document, we can say that Patrick really existed, that he was born somewhere in Britain, and that was taken to Ireland as a slave. He subsequently escaped and travelled back to Britain, but once become a priest, he felt compelled to return to Ireland as a missionary. Although many stories and beliefs about Patrick's life emerged into the centuries that followed such an idea that drove all the snakes from the island. The Confesso and the Espatoli are the only primary sources that researchers have been able to attribute confidence in Patrick himself and a period of time he was in Ireland. As a result, they are only sources that provide us with reliable information about the real and historic Patrick. Uh, 2010, page 3 to 11. Early Christian Ireland, a label used to refer to an early medieval period in Ireland, proximity, proximity 400 to 800. It was also an attractive period for cultural nationalists, while the rest of Europe was unhushering uh, un the Dark Age, Ireland was expect, uh, experiencing a golden age. St. Patrick brought Christianity to the country and the Irish monks reduced important building and artefacts and manuscripts. The distinct visual style that would, is, is evidence of the um, artefacts such as the Book of the Kells and New Testament of the Bible from CE 384, figure 5. It shows the unique script developed by the Irish scribes during the period, which is known as today as a insignia major skull script, you might also notice that similarity has been a script using figure five and that using for the words Siachfion na Gaelic. For cultural nationalists, it was also significant that Fuestric and his early Christian Ireland. 400 to 1000 were periods of time during which Irish people spoke to their own ancient language, were governed by their own laws, and had their own chief chief chieftains uh, and high, high kings. It was also time before the English came uh, to Ireland, a time before the Protestant Reformation, and a time before the industrialization and urbanization. Processes closely associated with Britain, but 
by repeatedly referencing the ancient Irish past using images, symbols and words. Cultural nationalists sought to create a positive view on the Irish culture and present is something for the Irish people to be proud of. To practice your skills, we're going to look at the activity on page 266. To practice your skills of analysing primary sources, you'll look at the more sources relevant to the work of the Gaelic League. Figure 6 is a poster advertising the Gaelic League Carnival in 1912. Figure 7 shows the head of the newspaper of the Gaelic League and the Cladenhelm Solace to translate the Sword of Light, a reference to the Irish mythology published in 1903. Both images can be seen in more detail in the online gallery of the module website. Examine figures 6 and 7 carefully and answer the following questions. In what ways do these sources reference in the ancient Irish past? Thinking about each source, what kind of audience do you think each one was aimed at? In the letters, CNS, the header of the Claydehemi Solis of the Zion left-hand side of the carnival poster are reminiscent of eliminated manuscripts such as the Book of Kells. Kells. These are images of the poster and newspaper. Rep- uh, rep- Respectively, these types of publications are generally targeted at a wide audience and are aimed to appeal to many people as possible. The newspaper is the Irish language, so you might have also noted that it is the audience was limited to Irish speakers. Look at the carnival poster. It is notable that most of the text is in the English language, which suggests that the organisers hoped to encourage attendance from people who would not speak Irish. The poster also advertises entertainment surprise that would be available during the carnival, again in hope and encourage attendance from a wide attendance. In the bottom right-hand corner of the poster, mention is made of the special exertion trains organised for the event coming from Cork, Limerick, Wexford and Galais, Galway and other towns. This is evidence that the organiser helped the carnival would attract people from all around the country. These sources provide further evidence of the ways in which ancient Irish past was referenced in visual sources related to the Galley League. While the sources you've looked at so far relate to attempts of revive the Irish language, a movement to reinvigorate English, lang- uh, English language literature produced in Ireland also emerged at this time. Participants in the Irish literature revival aimed to create a national tradition, a national literature which shall be no, uh, nonetheless Irish in the spirit and being English in language. W. B. Yeats quoted in Kilbeard, 1966, page 155, the ancient Irish past also provided inspiration for the literary revival, particularly is its mythology. Many Irish myths are committed to writing the medieval period and notable stories include the Sue Chulian, the Hound of the Calan myth, which tells the story of the hero warrior. Originally named Sentanta, who gained his, his new name, Sue Chulian, by killing a ferocious Irish wolfhound that acted as a guard, Dog the King Calan, and the children of Le Myth in which the three children were transformed into swans by their stepmother. Many Irish myths were introduced to an English-speaking audience in the island. For the first time in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, through translations such as Standish James O'Grady, 
history of Ireland, heroic period 1878 and 1880, and popular books such as T. W. Rowlandston, Myths and Legends of the uh, Celtic Race, 1911 furthermore. Poems, prose and plays produced at this time were influenced by the new research into Irish mythology. This is evident in some of the early work of William Butler Yeats, one of the pioneers of the literary revival, such as the poem Chuchelian's Fight with the Sea, 1892, the publication of the collection of the Irish myths in English language, and the references to those myths in English language literary works provide another means to cultural nationalism, nationalists to communicate ideas about ancient Irish past and the new audiences. These references these references to ancient past potentially had a broad appeal, for instance. Nationalists may consider the true Chulian to be a Celtic Irish hero, whereas Unionists may think him as a Ulster man, defending Ulster from the attacks of the South. Photographer of W.B. Yeats, 1990 Yeats in 1865-1939, to 30, was an Irish poet, the playwright Nobel Prize. The Rate and a Member of the Irish Senate, 1922-28. to 28. You can check that on, uh, online. Mr Yeats, 1910, Yeats figure. Cultural pastimes. Some efforts to communicate ideas about the ancient Irish past to the wider public were further reinforced by attempts to revive a range of traditional Irish cultural pastimes. For instance... The Gaelic League was also involved in promoting traditional Irish dancing and music. Meanwhile, a revival of traditional Irish sports such as hurling, Gaelic football and handball was pioneered by Gaelic Athletic Association, GAA, an organisation founded in 1884. The ancient organisations of such pastimes were emphasised by cultural nationalists and in certain cases pastimes were established by cultural nationalists. In certain and in certain cases, historical evidence supported these claims. For example, hurling is thought to be one of the oldest field games in the world. The first written references to the sport appeared in the True Julian myth. The wolfhound was killed by having a hurling ball driven down the throat. And other references are evident in ancient Irish laws. Rouse, 2015 to page 15. For many cultural pastimes, however. Evidence is patchy or more recent origin by deciding the rules of these sports and promoting them through major events and competitions. The GAA can be seen to have played an important role in shaping traditional Irish sports as they are known today. Wales 2015, page 16. Similarly, by establishing approved forms in Irish dis- uh, dances and promoting their official dance, Canon through a network of dance school and competitions in Ireland and overseas, the Gaelic League played an important role in shaping that we now understand that traditional Irish dances on the basis organisations such as GAA and Gaelic League can be seen to have invented tradition by promoting a range of new cultural pastimes that only seemed ancient or traditional in origin. On the other hand, traditions are open to interpretation and alteration over time. And it is worth keeping in mind that there were, was not enough evidence available to faithfully replicate many traditional pastimes. That being said, historical accuracy 
was not always the primary concern of cultural nationalists. Figure 9 is a photograph from an opening ceremony of the first Taltian Games of a kindly a kind of the impact for the Irish um, athletics which com uh, commenced in 1924. It shows two men dressed in some sort of ancient Irish costume <coughs> walking with two Irish wolfhounds again evoking memories of the Sue Chulian myth. While these customs undoubtedly served to remind audiences of the ancient Irish past, there had been a great deal of debate over the con constituted traditional Irish dress in the years leading up to 1924. Some writers' primary source evidence suggests that the um, costumes worn by the men in Figure 9 are reasonably authentic. For instance, in the late 17th, uh, tw 12th century, Gerald of Wales, 1146-1223, a cleric in the service of Henry II of England, provides an eyewitness amount of the Irish costume. Their costume in the Irish is to wear small clothes fitting hoods, hanging below the shoulders of cubits length, and generally made of patrick-coloured stripes sewn together. Under these there are woollen rugs instead of cloaks, with breeches and hose of, the, of one of the piece, or the hose of the breeches jointed together, which are usually dyed of some colour. This description is reported to be more recent written primary sources. In a 1662 publication, the Archdeacon John Lynch of Chiram, 1599-1670, described the Irish dress as follows. The breeches used by the Irish was a long garment, not cut at the knees, but climbing in itself with the sandals, the stocking and the drawers, and drawn by one and pull over the feet and thighs. The breeches cover the groin, but not su uh, sufficiently. If the long skirts of the tunic were not wrapped over them, the precaution is, in my opinion, more decorous than the other costume of the Swiss and the Sorbanes, who retain, even to the present day, a very unbecoming immodest dress, and consequently more open to the imputation or barbarism than the Irish, who do not offend modesty in their national costume. Lynch went on to note that more respectable ranks of the Irish society had abandoned this from the dress before he was born, but mem uh, humbler or orders has only done so with his lifetime. What is being described is, in these extracts are, are trues, an early form of trousers that written evidence presented here. It's also backed up by archaeology's evidence. If you examine figure 10, you can see a genuine example of the trues recovered a bog of country Sligo, which are now housed at the National, National Museum of Ireland. Proclamation of Endowments, Discovering Arts and Humanities. Please subscribe, please share. We're going to be doing more. We've got a few more pages to go for the book. Probably about another hundred pages to get to the end of the book. But anyway, we're enjoying the book, aren't we? We're enjoying the studying. Day in, day out, we are studying. Proclamation of Endowments, Doing more for God than I did yesterday. Please subscribe, please share. Historical evidence of history is real.